This is Women Who Rock, a podcast promoting Australian female musicians and artists. I am joined today by blues soul singer Fran Little. She fronts a group amongst many. She fronts one called Big Mama and the Hanged Men. Fran, welcome to Women Who Rock. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here. Women Who Blues in my in my case. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> who rock kind of- a bit. There, there is overlap. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, I, we, we definitely rock. We don't have uh, rock without blues, so. That's, you know, blues had babies. Yeah. <laughs> now and you have soul, jazz and rock. Yep, that's the, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about blues history, hopefully, tonight. But, yeah, so, I mean, we've already established that we both love the blues. Oh, yes. I we- am off to Tennessee in a couple of months. But my, I'm very inexperienced compared to you in terms of travelling to the South to kind of experience this rich musical history. Can you tell us a bit about some of your adventures to uh, America? I've had some amazing times through the South. Um, travelling, well, New Orleans is probably my spiritual home and I've been there. I've, I'm going back in three weeks as well. It'll probably be about my ninth trip. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I just can't not go back. And part of that trip that I did in 2013, um, I drove the Blues Highway with a couple of girlfriends and we drove up through to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and that was like discovering heaven. It was it was everything. It's so steeped in history and steeped in music history and just, you know, on the stage, famous musicians that I've heard of um, in our accommodation, Super Chicken was playing and he's... The I think the great nephew of Robert Johnson. Oh wow! And you know he's he's playing two feet in front of me. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, and then you go to Ground Zero, and on a Thursday night they have a jam, and world famous musicians. When I was there, um, the lead guitarist from White Snake was playing. Oh wow! Just playing on stage. Just playing on stage, jamming the blues, and I got to jam with him. Um, he was not interested in playing Here I Go Again, which really upset me because I was for that. Okay. But he was not for it, um, and I said, you know, I could do that because David Coverdale's my spirit animal. Um, but, yeah, so I got to play with these amazing musicians, and that was the first time that I came back to Australia and decided to really take music seriously um, when people of that calibre are going, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you working in finance? Yeah. Don't do that. Go and work in music. You should be working in music. Do the thing that you love. Do, and do the thing that you're good at. Um, you know, I'm also good at maths, but that doesn't really make any, <laughs> that doesn't give you any fire in the belly. And being able to play with these musicians and then being recognised walking down Beale Street um, in Memphis the next night from playing in Clarksdale and people going, oh my God, you're that singer we saw, you're really, really great. Oh, wow. And then I got offered a night at Red's, um, which is the oldest blues club in America, which is I've also in Clarksdale. I've heard of Red's from a different... To a CR employee who went there uh, it's and had a great time. Brilliant. Mm. It is just, it's just old, amazing. And you can feel the music, the music history in the walls. You can feel it as you walk in there. If you're willing to feel it, you can feel the people that have played there before you. You can feel that, you know, that club's been there for 40, 50 years. You know, it's been there forever. And it's one block down from... Um, the Riverfront Hotel, which used to be the um, 
the Negro Hospital, uh, where Bessie Smith died, where um, all of the greats, all of the great black musicians stayed after it became a hotel because it was the only place they could stay. And you're one block from that. So there's so much going on there and the sunsets and you just feel the history of that town and it's amazing. It's interesting that you and I have a deep appreciation of that music and where it came from, but I guess that there's a lot of people in the US who live so close to that. Like, we would travel and are going too soon (laughs) across the world to see that, and it's kind of right on their doorstep. I guess it's a bit of a shame that with all the modern pop music, it's it's been slowly lost. I think that they're aware of it. I think that they, and certainly in places like Clarksdale, that are a little bit depressed, um, and their economy needs a boost, and they have extreme poverty. They have, you know, they don't have a great economy going on there. That there's more serious things for them to worry about, like feeding their families. Yeah. Um, then you know, understanding that muddy waters played down here. Uh, it's you know, I, I get where they're coming from. They, you know, you need to feed your family. Mm. And it's obvious that yeah, as you mentioned, fire in the belly. You have a lot of passion for this music. For me, my love of blues comes from just the fact that it's so raw. There's an emotion and an expression, and there's nothing between how that's being projected and the responder. That's why I love it. Why do you love the blues? That would be exactly the same. And look, I love it because a it tells stories and it's not country music. Because um, okay. I do love <laughs> I do love music that tells stories that's not country music. I don't hate country music, but it can be a bit on. But blues generally tells a story um, and it's love and loss and we have this um, funny saying in one of the other bands that I play in um, called Big Mama and the Sugar Daddies where we do all your 20s, 30s and 40s blues is that the four subject matters all start with this. You either shoot it, you stab it, you screw it or you smoke it and that is it. It's a universal theme. It's a universal theme and, and, and it's what life was about but singing the blues above singing everything else is that I get to be myself in that, which is an overly emotional, extra human being, and it comes out well in blues. So I get to sing with all the passion that I have, and it, it and it works. And and the person, people that I'm singing to, feel it and come up to me and cry and laugh with me and uh, all of those wonderful things. And that's the best thing. And I never had that singing rock and roll. Hmm, okay. Talking about those universal themes, I think that maybe they are explored in modern pop music. I don't listen to a lot of modern pop music. Me either. But I feel as though it's kind of Pro Tools gets in the way. But as you said, you know, when you're on stage, I've had that experience. Uh, when I first saw you sing, I was blown away. And it's just like, there is nothing in between these, no. these maybe there's four, maybe there's more, these universal themes. Yep. And you telling the story. And I'm going to punch you in the face with emotion about it. Yeah. And that's what I love it like. It's a punch in the face with emotion. And it's it's phenomenal. And I feel um, every bit of that when I sing songs. So when I, and when I connect with the songs that I write or connect with particular songs that um, particular people write. Like I love um, with the Sugar Daddy singing Memphis mini songs because I okay. connect with her um, and Bessie Smith and all of the great ladies of the the 20s and 30s because they didn't conform and they didn't they weren't just pretty singers that you rolled out like these women could play and they could sing and they could fight and they could drink and they were just 
forces of nature. And, you know, with Memphis Minnie, a lot of the times the biggest stories about her is what a good brawler she was. And as a girl from Blacktown... I consider myself not a bad brawler myself. Yeah. <laughs> you have a rapport for multiple reasons, yeah. maybe. This is getting down a path that I wanted to go down. Ah. Because when you, I guess when a lot of people think about blues, particularly early blues, 1920s and 1930s, the archetypical picture that you have is a man with a guitar by himself mm. singing. But before the, that was the case in 1935, maybe, twenty early 20s, it oh, was really... Man. It was, yeah. It was women. Women really were there, um, starting with Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey was the first woman to really be world famous in blues in the 1900s, you know, 1900, 1910. And she brought Bessie Smith on. Um, and then Bessie Smith, who had that voice, um, who then, you know, and then you had... Um, Billie Holiday and singing that sort of jazz blues and this all came from these amazing women and I'm lucky enough to when I do play with the Sugar Daddies with Michael Meisner um, who introduced me to all of of this music which he loves about the and the stories that women tell um, and and from those perspectives of those times which is really really interesting yeah. um, and we do we do a lot of Memphis Minnie and I just I dig her like I dig everything about her. She just really resonates. She with. resonates with me because she's just she was tough, she was strong, she was feminine when she needed to be, but if she needed a throw down in a bar fight, she could. Okay, who doesn't want to be that? <laughs> Did she spend a lot of time on Beale Street? Yes. So she they call her. She's from um, raised in uh, well not raised in Louisiana but born in Louisiana. Mm. Um, but she ran away at thirteen to Beale Street. Whoa. At 13 years old, she was playing on the corners of Beale Street, playing guitar. And look, they say that she was as great a guitarist as any of the men around at that time. And and she was. But she was also a woman of colour and a woman yeah. in 1929. Yeah, So wow. people weren't really going to notice that. But they, you know, the stories are that she was as great a guitarist at that time as anyone. I think one of, one of the items on my to-do list for today is to... Go and listen to lots of many... Memphis mini songs. She's, she wrote about 200. Okay. She's got heaps. <laughs> she was great. Are there... Because another interesting point is that there are a lot of musicians at the time who were not necessarily documented. Because yeah. we're talking the 20s, right? Yeah. You can't do this, come on a Monday night into a studio and just sing your heart out. It, there was not the no. equipment required. So there's all of, you know, you know, the entertainment at the time was singing songs and telling stories about what was going on in your life at the time. Um, so there could have been, on any farm, on any place, in any of the southern states, somebody better. Mm. But who would know? Who would know? Who would know? I mean, and particularly with women, their role was not to do that. So they would sing for the family, but you wouldn't... Yeah. Who would know? But it takes these ballsy women like... Memphis Minnie and Bessie, Bessie Smith, Smith. And Ma Rainey, and these women that were strong and powerful, and their their power and strength resonates with me because I mean you've met me, I can be a bit of a force to be reckoned with at times, <laughs> <laughs> can be a little bit tough. So, you know, these women blaze trails for every woman that wanted to sing this kind of music. I also find it interesting the concept of 
what was commercially perceived as viable and how it kind of changes as a function yeah. of time. From my knowledge, it seems as though in the early 1920s, a lot of the, whether they made money or not, was probably the record companies that made a lot of the money. Yeah. But it seemed as though in the 90, early 1920s, Bessie Smith era, it was a lot of women who were the mm. kind of commercial blues singers. Yep. But then that stopped. Like mid around the 30s, it sort of transitioned. Yeah. Is that true? Look, I, I think so. I don't know enough about it um, to to say categorically that that is the truth. Yeah. I think that around the 30s and 40s, society, we seem to go through these loops of of women being oppressed over periods of time and, and equal rights being something that's um, – it, it tends to loop. And in the 30s and 40s, we went through a more puritanical age, mm. 40s and certainly the 50s, yeah. where women, where female roles were absolutely gendered into that because after the war, men coming back, wanting to take over the, the masculine roles that women were doing. So I think that that might have something to do with it. I think certainly that the last breaths of um, any regime that is bad and evil are the worst breaths. Mm. And certainly in the 40s and 50s for people of colour, anything that they were doing that was successful would have been oppressed. Not to say that we're in a situation that they're still not, but that was, you know, right before... Before um, the civil rights movement, mm. in the, when that build-up was from the 30s and 40s and 50s. So when people feel their power being taken away, they grip harder. So, you know, that was their white people gripping harder on that power. It's always uglier just before it gets better. Mm. So that, that might have something to do with that. And you know that, you know, in any, in any situation, women of colour are going to be, unfortunately, considered the lowest rung on the ladder, which is horrendous. Um, but it it is how it was. Yeah. So in the scheme of things, that could have been something to do with it. But that could just be my political beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> well, from the 20s and 30s yeah. to 2018, you play in a group called Big Mama and the Hanged Men with George. George Agardos, who, who is an absolute legend guitarist. Yeah. Uh, Serge Coniglione on bass, who is the funkiest man alive. And um, Ed Rodriguez on drums, who is just... There are not enough words to describe how good he is on drums. He's just the best. Cool. <laughs> and we just gel. We um, usually we have the ethos um, a little like we don't sound anything like the Tedeschi Trucks Band, but we have that same sort of jam ethos is that um, everybody has an opportunity to shine on stage and it's not just about the singer and it's not just about the lead guitarist, that if somebody's feeling something in that moment, then we run with it. If it's good, we run with it. Um, and it leads to us... Never doing a song the same way twice, which yeah. we kind of like doing. Yeah, I can dig that. My favourite band of all time is the White Stripes. Ah, yeah. And they are largely driven by Meg on the yeah. drums. And, yeah, the the improvisation is almost like a third instrument. Yeah. It just flows so beautifully. I and then it. you put George's... Um, George, like, George tells stories in guitar solos like you've never heard like mm. he can tell stories with his guitar that um there are a lot of times where i'll just stand back and go and forget to sing yeah <laughs> and i'll just forget yeah. and he has to look up and look at me so i'll do that so i'll get up and sing because you just sit back and you listen to him weave this magic through the song and then build it and build it and build it 
it's just, I'm so lucky that I get to play with these people. Like, I'm so lucky. That's a really nice place to be. (laughs) It is. It is. It's absolutely. And, you know, know, I'm 47, so I've been playing for a little while. Um, And to finally find the people that I fit with the best. And that's playing with those guys. And we're doing so well at the moment. We've been playing a few out-of-town shows. We're going to record this year. Um, it just is so comfortable and it's like playing with family. It's, um, it's family to me. Recording soon. We'll get to that. But what I'd like to do first is we're going to have a world first. <laughs> we're going to, for the first time, we're going to be performing a track here in the studio, Women Who Rock. So let's hear now an original tune uh, called Better Things To Do from Big... I guess a different version of Big Mama and the Hangmen. Yeah. Fran singing and me playing guitar. Yay! (laughs) Here we are. Mama knows you've been catting round with someone else's mouse. That's why I've gone and changed the locks on this very house. If you're looking for the keys to the car I bought for you, you'll find them down in the car lot on Highway 52. Now I could get down on my knees and cry just like a fool. Thank you. 
was a live in the studio performance of Better Things to Do by Big Mama and the Hanged Men. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the story behind that? Oh, see, I, whenever I'm on stage, I tell this story to everybody is that if I'm going to date you, you will end up in a song and it's your choice whether it's good or bad. <laughs> Um, your move. Your move. Your move, mate. Your move. Um, that song, I wrote that song about my first, uh, not my first boyfriend, it's the first song I wrote, but my um, a long-term relationship I had. And it wasn't about the relationship itself, but three years down the track after it finished, he rang me up um, and asked for something and asked me to send him something in his email address. And, I'm, and he said... And I said, oh, well, you send me your email address because I don't know what that is. And he goes, oh, of course you know what that is. And I said, dude, I haven't talked to you in three years. I haven't called you. I haven't messaged you. Why would you think I would know anything about you? I have better things to do. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I did. You did have better. <laughs> I did have so many better things so to do. You had a list of things to do. Oh, my God. Cutting my toenails was a better thing to do. <laughs> we haven't spoken about how we first met. I was going to start with that. Oh. The best jam in the history of jams. Yeah, we met in Glebe, down yeah. the road at the Roxbury Hotel, at the Roxbury Blues Jam. And I remember I went there, I think it had been going for a little while before I went, and I sort of rocked up one day with my Telecaster, yeah. and it was a bit confronting because I didn't know anyone there, and you came straight over to me, and we had a chat, and you were really welcoming. And then that jam went for a year and it was amazing. It was the best jam in the history of jams. Yeah. And we still talk, I mean, it's been two years since the Roxbury became student accommodation. Um, but we still talk about that because George used to run that jam and George runs the best jams because he has the best memory for names and for people yeah. and he knows how people work well together. But even people that used to come, we still talk about that. And I met so many people and became friends with so many people through that and I became a better singer and better musically because of that jam. And we still talk about how that was the best thing to do on a Tuesday night yeah. ever. And, we're, and it, we've tried to have other jams at other places. It just hasn't happened as well. It's, there seems to be something happened. There was a little bit of magic in Glee on a Tuesday night. There was. For the year or so that that jam ran. It was just magical. And you know what also took it to the next level was having the horns there. <gasps> I love it's like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Yeah. And there's a full room of people jamming. And those boys are now, they're in the Hot Potato Band. Mm. Um, so that was Dan Moore, Max Mellon Cooper and James Mackey, who I love, like they're my children. I was going to say like brothers, but they're young enough to be my children. And I do, and I adore them. And we're doing a gig together on the 20th of April. Really? Yeah. We'd be, we've called it Big Mama Gets Horny because, you know, who doesn't love a play on words? Um <laughs> So blues is somewhat based on. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's one of the four premises of blues. Yeah, sure. The screw it. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, the amazing Max Mellon Cooper is off doing a doctorate in something to do with a lot of plants, and he posts a lot of pictures of moss. So I'm not entirely sure what he's doing his doctorate in, but okay. he's doing a field placement in that. So um, I, unfortunately, he's not going to be there, but Dan Moore... Um, James Mackey and Dane Laborie are coming to play horns with big. So we're doing wow. a big band on the twentieth of April at Lazy Bones. When you say he's posting photos of moss, it's not an IT crowd reference. It's <laughs> no, it's no. actual moss. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I like the IT crowd too. I love the IT. Crowd. I have a story about that. The Hot Potato Band. One of the guys I know. One of the other people who's in it. Um, we went to uni together and stayed in the same college. Wow. Yeah. 
Uh, and then I saw, I was friends with those guys on Facebook and I saw that they knew him and it all made sense. All, all makes sense. <laughs> and look, and the Hot Potato Band are going to be world famous. Hopefully. They're already... Um, they're doing real well. They're doing so well and they deserve it. They're so good. Yeah. Um, they do really cool videos as well. Uh, and seeing them just take off like that is, it just makes my heart happy. Well, let's talk about the Sydney blues scene. Yes. You are pretty heavily involved in that. I saw you play at Lazy Bones. I play at Lazy Bones times. a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, they've been really supportive of me over any incarnation of any band. I'll email Alex. And out of that, I've developed this amazing friendship with Alex um, Heffernan, who is one of the owners. Um, she's an amazing, strong woman who I really like. And I'll message her with some crazy idea and she'll go, yeah, let's do that. Uh, or she'll have a crazy idea. So it was um, for two years now we've been doing uh, International Women's Day benefits because International Women's Day is also my birthday. Um, she messaged me for the first one. She said, I want to do something on International Women's Day and I want you to be involved. And I went, well, it's my birthday. Let's have a birthday party. And the first year we raised a heap of money for um, a uh, indigenous charity called Hey Sis, We Got You Back, which looks at having Indigenous counsellors in remote communities for um, domestic and sexual assault, which was really great. And we got to, we raised about $3,000 for that. And this year we chose Sister Works as our, um, as our charity, which looks at giving meaningful work to uh, refugee and asylum-seeking women, who are generally the ones that um, are left out of the equation and when trying to assimilate trying to be involved in in their new surroundings and learning languages and things like that. So it gives them an opportunity to work. That sounds like an amazing initiative. I knew that you were doing those gigs on International Women's Day, but I didn't know about that. There you go. So you're at Losey Moans heaps. Yes. But so we were talking about Bessie Smith in the 1920s. It's 2018. Is there a thriving blues scene? I think Sydney that unfortunately there's no thriving scene in Sydney at all um, and we're struggling. I found this year I've never struggled to get gigs before because I have a winning personality. That's not true. <laughs> there was heaps of gigs to get and everybody. But the medium-sized venues that we would play at, so we, when you're small bars and things like that, that's not going to work for a band as with as big a sound as us, yeah. as someone with as big a vo voice as me. So um, those medium-sized venues that hold between one and 200, 300 people, like the basement that's closing down, and Lazy Bones. And Newtown Lazy Bones, Social Club. Oh, Newtown oh. Social Club. And so it really, you know, and not having the arts precinct in Sydney, I'm having that turned down. But those medium-sized venues that we would play in, there's so few about. So we're playing out of town more. So we just played um, at Beaches in Thoreau, supported by Blues Explosion by Tony Cheney. And it was great and it was packed and it pays well. We did the same thing at uh, Budgie Boy. You know, we're looking at booking Canberra and Kiama and those places and looking at booking in Melbourne purely because there isn't a lot to book in Sydney now. And I can play Lazy Bones and I do. And that's like my home venue, and I'm so appreciative of everything that they do for us. Um, but other than that, trying to find a place, I, you know, we played the basement, and that was my lifelong dream to sing on the stage at the basement. After I saw Vicar and Linda Bull do it, and I'm like, I wouldn't do that. Um, and I've luckily, seen I got you to play do that. The basement a couple of times, I think. Yeah, and I yeah. got to do that, and which is amazing. But when they said they were closing that down, oh, it's so emotional. Mm. Because I just think of all of the wonderful things that have happened there. 
the wonderful, wonderful things and the amazing bands and seeing two of my idols, Vicar and Linda Ball. Um, I've seen them play there four or five times and with my mum um, and seeing McCulloch Sons of Thunder and the Gospel Elites and just amazing things that I've seen there and that it's probably going to turn into a Woolies. Yeah, that's depressing. Isn't it depressing? I actually, when I first came to Sydney, I first came in 2007, but I think the first time I went to the basement was 2008 or 2009, and I saw like a big James Morrison. James Morrison played in a big band, and I saw, I guess, it wasn't all blues, but they did one basically like straight 12 bar, and I just, the guitarist did this amazing guitar solo, and it knocked me out, because I come from a pretty small rural area. I had no, I loved listening to recordings of blues music, yeah. but that was the first time where I was seeing someone's fingers move in front of me, and it was making that sound. Yeah, and my jaw dropped, and I've only just put it back up. But that is so. You're kind of saying that it's not the big venues that we need. No, all the small ones. You think the it's whole that, the whole is in that pub level medium venue. So you know, I don't think there's any issues with people going to see concerts. I don't think there's any issues filling the end more for bands of that size. Mm. And my friends that sing and play guitar by themselves, they're doing all right in they're getting the gigs. But it's us, the four piece bands like us, the, the four in those medium level venues that I'm just. Just struggling to to get anything out of, which is so sad in a vibrant city that I know that I used to go out in when I was young. In when I was young, do you like that one? When I was young, <laughs> in the late eighties and the early nineties, through the Cross and through Newtown and all of those wonderful bands that I got to see, there were just yeah, everyday working musos that were talented and brilliant. Is there a consensus of, like, a potential solution for what do we need to do? I, I wouldn't say what my solution would be because I might get arrested. Okay. We're going tr- trying to avoid defamation cases in yeah. this podcast. So, so um, I'm, I, I think that we need to have, in all honesty, I think that our government is owned by developers. And I think that for however long that occurs, we will not win. I think that, and that makes me sad, mm. but I think that the development dollar is so lucrative and so lucrative to our government that they will not give two craps about what happens to their lo- the thriving music scene and working musicians. Now, two of the guys that I play with are full-time working musicians, and so I try really hard to make sure that they get paid, and paid a halfway decent wage, but... The wages for musician hasn't gone up since the early nineties. Hundred and fifty dollars a gig. How do you how how do you feed your family on that? Yeah, hundred and fifty dollars for the gig, but the twenty hours of practice, the practice before the gig. The lug in, the lug out, everything that they do, you know, when I think of the work that my guys put into the music that I send to them, like we did a gig on Thursday night and I sent them a song at three o'clock and they knew it by seven. Mm. And we played it. They are musicians. They are musicians. They are talented, fantastic musicians. They deserve more than $150 a gig. They deserve more than $100 a gig. They deserve more than this. And we deserve to really respect musicianship as an occupation. Yeah, I've, I could afford to be a full-time musician, I would, but I don't play, I don't play any instruments because 
not that talented. <laughs> but um, if I could do music full time, I would. And that's fundamentally why I'm planning on moving to New Orleans next year. Because more opportunity. More opportunity, and I can work full time there as a musician. Mm. That's actually a bit of a dour note to end our discussion. Maybe it's appropriate being a blues based woman who rock. <laughs> but I think you've finished with a very strong message there. Fran, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat to me on Women Who Rock. Thanks, Maddie. You're awesome. Now I could drink to forget you, baby. But that's not what I'll do. Women Who Rock is proudly produced in the Sydney studios of Do As E R 107.3. Do, baby. Those better things ain't you.